stocks, bonds, cryptocurrency, forex, real estate, patents, coin collections, collectibles. <laughs> There's so many different types of assets out there, right? So many different types of things that you and I could buy that will theoretically anyway go up in value over time, right? So many different types of investments. Well, how do we make sense of this investment universe? Well, today's episode is dedicated to helping sort that out. How do we understand the different types of assets that exist and how do we make decisions about what to invest in? Let's get it. Welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. My name is Alex Mason, and I'm your host and stock storyteller. On this show, we decode the business behind the stock in order to help you become a better investor. We're studying every company in the S&P 500, and we'll also look at mental models, which are principles that can help you and I make better investing decisions. Right, so if you've been following along with this Investing 101 series, you know that this is part four of the series. We've already talked about a couple of things. First of all, we talked about the three things you can do with money. You can only save, spend, or give it. And then we talked about the magic of compound interest. It's the eighth wonder of the world. That's how money grows. And then we asked the question, okay, well, we know that compounding is how money grows, but what do you actually do with it to make it grow? And that led to part three. You have to buy assets. Assets are what allow money to grow. And we broke assets down into a few different types, but today I wanna look at it from a different angle. We're gonna look at three major asset classes in order to better understand what the investment universe has to offer and how you and I can grow our money. All right. Let's get into it. The first type of asset class that you can invest in is a private business. If your sister-in-law wants to open up a consulting firm and they ask for money to help start it up, you might put up some money with the hope that the business prospers and then as an owner, you would reap the benefit of an increase in value. Now the scenario would be the same if you wanted to invest in say a local bagel shop or a dental office. Entrepreneurs need capital and instead of taking out a loan from a bank, they might sell a part of their business to you in the form of equity. Remember, equity equals ownership. In this case, as the investor, you're not counting on a loan being paid back to you. You own a percentage of the business, which means that legally you're entitled to both your share of the profits and the losses of that business over time. 
Now, there are various subgroups of this asset class, and you could think about things like startups, which is kind of the realm of venture capital and angel investors. You could think about established private businesses. Think about a large privately held business in your hometown, for example. And then another thing is you might invest in franchises. Some franchises are related to publicly traded businesses, but there are many franchises that are related to private businesses that you can invest in. Now, investing in private businesses is usually best suited for people who already have some wealth and are looking to expand their wealth through higher risk, higher reward opportunities. For example, there are groups of people called angel investors who invest in startups, the category that I just mentioned. And startups are unproven business ideas that usually aren't making money yet, but have a ton of potential. So that's the world of angel investors. Now, private equity investors usually buy shares in privately held established businesses. Now, as an example that you can probably relate to, Warren Buffett is and was a private equity investor. His company, Berkshire Hathaway, it's a publicly traded company. And many people think of Buffett as someone who's this world-class stock market investor, which he is. However, there's this common misconception that this billionaire built his wealth exclusively through stocks, which is very far from the truth. Now, Buffett spent a lot of his career looking for private businesses to buy. And one example of that was his purchase of a company called Seas Candies, which is this chocolate and candy maker from the state of California. So if you live on the West Coast, you're probably familiar with Seas Candies. Now, there are ways to participate in this asset class without having lots of money already. Now, for example, you could do something like buy shares of a private equity fund or venture capital fund. But all that means is that you're pooling your money with other investors in order to buy private businesses. Now, one thing to note is that investing in these types of funds will require you to pay some kind of management fee to whoever's running the fund. Someone has to actually go out and buy ownership in these private businesses. Now, probably the most common way to invest in this asset class outside of founding your own company from scratch is to invest in something like a franchise. Now, what is a franchise? A franchise is a network of businesses that share a common brand name and functional operations. So they're just run by different people, usually in different territories or regions of a country or of the world. Now, of course, one of the most famous franchises in the world is McDonald's. Now, although the large corporation we know of as McDonald's creates burger recipes, sources ingredients from farmers, and runs ad campaigns, the local McDonald's near where you live is actually owned by someone other than McDonald's, the corporation. At some point, this person or a group of people applied to the corporation to be a franchisee, and what they did was they paid an upfront fee to open their location, and now they pay ongoing royalty fees that are a percentage of how much business they generate. Now, in exchange for paying these fees, the franchise owner gets to use the McDonald's brand name to sell burgers and fries, and that often makes it an attractive proposition given that McDonald's is one of, if not the, most successful restaurant concepts ever created. 
And I want to be clear here, restaurants aren't the only types of franchises. There are a lot more. There are dog grooming businesses, child care businesses, elder care businesses, car washes. The list goes on and on. But just know that with private businesses, one of the most common ways to invest in that kind of a business is by investing in a franchise. Okay, so this is all good information to know. What are the major benefits and drawbacks of this asset class? Well, the biggest benefit of investing in private businesses is the potential for very high rates of return. Now, to use another example, it would not be uncommon for a typical Domino's pizza business to generate over $100,000 per year in profit. Now consider that to start a Domino's franchise costs somewhere between $200,000 and $500,000. And you're talking about a potentially very large return on your money. I mean, think about that. If you open a Domino's for $500,000 and after paying all of your costs, paying all of your employees, you make $100,000 in profits, well, that's one divided by five. That's 20% rate of return right there on your money and that's probably going to grow over time as your business grows. So you can get high rates of return potentially with franchises and other types of private businesses, of course, as well. I'm just using franchises because for me, they're a little bit easier to understand and use for examples. The biggest drawback of buying a private business in my mind is the higher amount of money and risk usually associated with these types of investments. It's also a step closer to entrepreneurship. And in the case of owning and operating a franchise, it is entrepreneurship. You just have a brand name that has already been made for you, but make no mistake, you are an entrepreneur if you are a franchisee. And that can require lots of time, depending on the opportunity. Now, for example, we talked a little bit about angel investing. An angel investor who buys shares in a startup company might invest $100,000 and maybe they don't have to do any work with that company necessarily. Maybe they provide some expertise or some kind of consulting to help get it going, but they're not really the one working in the business. It's the founder or a group of founders that are really hustling to build that business. But the drawback is that angel investor might never see a return on that investment at all. And they might spend dozens of hours evaluating the company, talking with the founder, etc. And they might not get any of that money back. It might just disappear if the business opportunity doesn't work out. So there are some major drawbacks to this kind of an asset class. If you don't know what you're doing, if you don't have the capital, if you don't have the time or the patience, there are some major drawbacks. I mean, let's just be real. It's basically entrepreneurship or getting very close to entrepreneurship, which is typically very risky. But on the flip side, you could make a lot of money with this. And in fact, this is how many, many, many fortunes have been made is through investing in or creating or somehow having some kind of ownership interest in a private business. What are the benefits and drawbacks of real assets? Well, real assets are the original ways that humans built wealth and stored value. In medieval Europe, pepper was a commodity that was considered so valuable, it was owned only by kings and nobility. And if you want to learn more about that type of asset, 
go ahead and listen to the McCormick episode that we did a few months ago. Now, in the early days of America's founding, real estate was the way that wealth was created and passed down, and large tracts of land were given to early settlers by European colonizers. There were entire class and social structures that were formed and cemented by real estate ownership with white male plantation owners reaping the benefits of dozens of acres of land worked by African slaves who had no ownership at all. So this really set the stage for a lot of what we see today as far as class and social structure is real estate. Real estate was the way that the wealthy owned wealth back in America's early days. And it's not just in America, real estate has had a profound impact in the wealth of nations across the globe. Now, one of the major benefits of real assets, and you can think of, of course, real estate too, is that they usually have some obvious physical utility. A house is something you can live in. Farmland can be planted with seed to grow crops. Artwork is considered beautiful or aesthetically pleasing. They are tangible things that can be seen and touched and experienced. Now, real estate as a general asset class has made a lot of wealth for a lot of people. Single family homes, warehouses, strip malls, mobile homes, office complexes. These are all things that allow modern civilization to thrive because of the physical benefits that they provide. There's a certain stability that's attracted to this asset class, particularly residential homes. No matter how technology evolves or how the economy moves, there's some logic to the belief that people will always need a physical place to live. Now let's talk about the downside. Now real assets are not scalable and they are finite resources. For example, if you wanna sell more barrels of oil, you have to go search for it drill for it, transport it, refine it, and then sell it as fuel. (laughs) That's a lot of work, right? That's what the oil companies do, is they spend years searching the globe for new sources of oil. And then they actually have to extract it, process it, and then sell it. And that's a lot of work. And they have an entire business structured around that. Another example is if you want to become a real estate investor and rent a single family home to a local family, you can only rent out that home to one group of people at a time. That's it. You can't say, okay, well, I now bought this house. Why don't you guys just keep sharing rooms with more people and I'll charge more people more rent to live in the same space? Like that's not going to work because people want their own space and they're only going to be willing to share that space to a certain extent. So it's not really as scalable. If you wanna collect 10 times the rent, you'll probably need 10 times the rental units, and that can take a lot of time and physical labor, let alone the money that's required to purchase the additional properties, or at the very least, put down a down payment in order to leverage and get those properties in order to rent them. So there are downsides to real assets as well but there are pluses also. The third and final category of assets you can invest in is paper assets. Paper assets are things that have value, but that we can't see or touch. 
The subcategories within this asset class are numerous and will only become more so as digital technology, artificial intelligence, and the internet become even more and more sophisticated. But these are things like stocks, bonds, currency, think about the US dollar, the Mexican peso, Bitcoin or Ethereum, etc. Intellectual property. These are things like software or patent rights or music rights. Some types of paper assets stand alone and are created by governments or other organizations like currency. Now, others derive their value from one of the other two asset classes. For an example, a share of stock represents a business which itself owns assets. Now, something like mineral rights for land out in Texas might derive its value from the fact that it's a contract that allows you to drill for oil. And remember, oil is a real asset within certain physical boundaries of the property. Now, what are the major benefits and drawbacks of paper assets? Well, the beauty of paper assets is that their value is based on intangibles, and that's what makes them scalable. That means that their theoretical value has a far higher limit than something like a real asset, which is tied more to physical utility. A single, well-developed software platform can serve billions of people instantaneously. Just think about something like Google in a way that a strip mall in a typical suburb cannot. (laughs) Shares of stock can be used as the paper asset that represents ownership of scalable businesses, and that makes them attractive for investors. Paper assets are also attractive because once they're created, they require little to no work for the owner to reap the financial benefits. For example, once a patent for an invention is created and then licensed out, to be used by others, as long as the invention remains relevant, it'll continue to generate royalties for the patent owner long after the invention itself was conceived. Isn't that incredible? You can make something once and then sell out the right to use it over and over and over and over again and make money that way. Now, a major downside of paper assets is that they cannot immediately take care of your physical needs or desires. Paper assets are just representations of ideas. They're representations of ideas and ownership. You cannot live in your stock portfolio or eat your collection of bonds. This type of asset might also be at a higher risk of regulatory scrutiny, depending on the specific characteristics of the asset. Just look at something like cryptocurrency right now. The world is trying to figure out how to deal with cryptocurrency and it might take a while before that gets sorted out. We have looked at the three major asset classes. We've looked at private businesses, we've looked at real assets, and we've looked at paper assets. Now though, I like all three asset classes and I'll probably eventually invest in all of them at some point in my life. At this phase of my family's investing journey, we are highly focused on paper assets. 
Now, in spite of its drawbacks, I think paper assets are most suitable to beginners and advanced investors alike because of the following reasons. This is why I just love paper assets. Number one is they're scalable. You can actually make a lot of money from a single stock, share of stock, whereas, like I said, a single piece of real estate can only do so much as far as its financial productivity. So stocks are scalable. Paper assets in general are scalable. Number two is there are low barriers to entry. Particularly with a stock market, you have little to no commissions to buy or sell, especially these days. So it's really easy to get into these types of investments. Number three is they often have liquid markets and that allows you to buy and sell more quickly. Contrast this with something say, like say a piece of artwork. If you want to sell that artwork, you'll probably have to find an auctioneer or find some kind of a specialist who can locate some potential buyers. It's a much more involved process. Whereas if I want to sell shares of Coca-Cola from my broker's account, it's very quick and easy because I know that the broker is going to be able to match my sell order with someone else's buy order in the matter of fractions of a second. And that is incredible. It's a very liquid market and that allows for a lot more different transactions. Number four is you have a lot of options that can generate high rates of return. I mean, geez, there are several thousand businesses in the world that are publicly traded in the form of shares of stock. That alone is incredible. There's just so many options. Whereas with other forms of assets, yeah, there may be a lot of options, but I mean, with intellectual property, the options are just infinite. So there's just a lot of lot more options than other types of assets. And then number five, paper assets don't require hands-on management. This is a big one. This is a huge one. Remember we talked about private businesses and again, private businesses can generate incredible amounts of wealth. And in fact, are probably the highest returning asset class of the three but you actually have to run a business in many cases and that can basically become your life (laughs) so if you want to find a way to invest that isn't through some kind of direct form of entrepreneurship paper assets are a great way to go because they don't require hands-on management imagine that you create an invention for something and yeah that does require a lot of upfront work but if that invention is successful you're basically done. You're basically done because you can license that invention out to companies to use over and over, and it doesn't require hands-on management. You've already done the work. So those are the reasons why I primarily invest in paper assets, specifically stocks. And I wanted to bring this discussion to you because I just think it's really important to lay out that logical flow of why we're doing what we're doing. Why are we investing in the stock market? Are we investing in the stock market just because we saw it on the news one day and thought to ourselves, you know what? People make money with that. I should make money with that. No, that's not why we invest in the stock market. We invest in the stock market because we have objective, rational reasons for doing so relative to other investment opportunities. And that's how I want you to think about this kind of stuff. It's not just about investing in something 
because it's shiny object or because your friend told you that you should do it. No, it's investing based on a system of understanding, okay, what are all the available options? What are the pros and cons of each option? And then which option, based on my analysis, best suits my lifestyle and my goals? And that's my goal here with this episode is to break things down for you in a simple enough way to where you can understand, all right, this is the reason we're investing in stocks versus other asset classes. So I hope that was helpful. This has been part four of the Investing 101 series, and I plan to keep going with this. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If so, let me know. Send me an email at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. You can always reach me there or on social media at Stock Storyteller. And we'll keep going. I've got more ideas, more episodes here in the series for you that will be coming out over the coming weeks. So be on the lookout for that. This episode was written and produced by me, Alex Mason, your stock storyteller. Music was provided by Janelle Leong, Matt Madden, Benjamin Frisch, and myself. So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this and we'll see you next week with Stock Stories. Thanks for listening.